I'm thankful to God and I'm thankful to Bev too for bringing that, uh, that reading for us. Uh, it'd be great to keep that open, uh, that passage, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this term, we are working our way through this letter uh, to the church uh, in a place called Colossae in, in what's now modern Turkey. And I'm going to pray today uh, that we might see and understand why this particular passage is so full of goodness for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, praise you uh, that this letter uh, was preserved, has been preserved for almost 2,000 years. We thank you that in it, Father, are treasures for us. And we pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you might take these words and set them on fire in our hearts. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when uh, I was preparing for this uh, passage, I was doing our, our regular Bible reading. I don't know if you've been reading along. We have a regular Bible reading plan where you can download that on our newsletter and it'll give you a passage for the day, uh, one chapter uh, each day. And I was having a read of this passage and I'll read it to you now. This is the start of Psalm 145. It says, I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. And extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Well, here's a 3,000-year-old piece of Hebrew poetry. How wonderful. My question this morning is, uh, it moved the author, didn't it? It moved the author. It gripped the author such that they could say extraordinary things like this, I'll extol your name forever. Every day I will praise you. You're wonderful. You're majestic. It gripped this subject. The subject of our God gripped the author and has gripped God's people for 2,000 years, which is why we still are able to read it this morning. I guess my question is, is, is the psalmist wrong? Do we sit here and we go, I mean, we just sung some beautiful songs, and I'm very thankful for that, uh, and I enjoy them. But, you know, majestic and, and worthy of all praise, they're, they're pretty high-sounding words, aren't they? God, we're pleased that we're here. We think you're pretty good. We'd like to lift you up a bit. Uh, it sounds almost like... The psalmist has turned up a little bit too high. He's a, he's a little bit overly keen. I could be accused of this sometimes, perhaps. Uh, he's a little bit overly keen. So why? What, what has caused this psalmist to be so particularly enraptured? In the time where Paul was writing to the Colossians, there were lots of gods worthy of lifting up. He, he could have lifted up, and in fact the people around him were told to lift up the name of Zeus, the king of the gods who ruled on Mount Olympus. You should worship Zeus. He's the king of the gods. Or just down the road in Goulburn, I mean Ephesus, that's about how far away it is, in, in, in Ephesus, they have an incredible temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. It's 160 metres long. It's 40 metres wide and 20 metres high. It is literally one of the seven wonders of the world. And it's just down the road in Ephesus. We should praise and honour Artemis of the Ephesians, everybody in the world knows she's great. And if you're not done praising the king of the gods and the queen of the gods, well, then you probably should 
praise Caesar, who declares himself to be the son of God. Did you know this? I always thought this was a bit of a fudge from preachers, but you can actually find coins where it says, you know, um, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Essentially, what happened was the Caesars were made into gods. And so to be the son of the last Caesar is to be the son of God. And so Caesar is Lord was a way you could greet somebody. Caesar's Lord, yes, Caesar is Lord. So we've got a whole bunch of people who are worthy of praise and honour. And they're drawing attention, demanding attention even. A little bit after Colossians was written, uh, lived this man, and he has an amazing name. His, his name is Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna, that was the town where he lived, that wasn't his second name. Um, Polycarp of Smyrna, that, that's a little bit further away than, uh, than Ephesus and Colossae where we're looking. So same part of the world. It's about 90 years later. Now this incredible man uh, was a bishop in the early church. And uh, there was a, a, a recurrence of the emperor's trying to get praise to them. And so uh, the current Caesar of the time was telling everybody they needed to worship all of the Roman gods and also to honour Caesar as a god. And so it got to the Christians and they basically said, you need to show your allegiance to the emperor. You need to declare your allegiance to the emperor or bad things will happen to you. What, what might they be? Well, uh, this man, uh, Polycarp, was arrested. He was taken to trial and they said to him, what, why, what, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense and saving yourself? Essentially what they said, this old man, he's 86, not that old, is that right? Not that old. Slightly mature, right? Okay. There, there was an old, old mature man who, who's there, he's 86, and what they're saying is, mate, what, you, what we need you to do, just say Caesar is Lord, put a little bit of incense in this bowl, and we're all good. Won't you just say Caesar is Lord? And what he said incredibly powerfully, I think, was this. He says, for 86 years, I have been his servant. This is Jesus. For 86 years, I've been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they said, well, to the flames you will go. And he said, well, you won't need to bind me to the post. I will stand there freely. And he was burnt to death at the age of 86 because he chose not to deny the Lord Jesus, to find the name of Jesus of such high honour, of such great worth, that he was willing to die rather than to blaspheme him. And the question we have to ask is why? What had Polycarp found in Jesus that made him so worthy of honour and even his life? was executed at the age of 86. Our world offers us a much smaller vision of Jesus, doesn't it? And not, certainly not a Jesus you would die for. Colossians offers us an extraordinary vision of Jesus. And so I want to take you there today. I, I want to show you that this passage, these little number of verses here, these eight verses, are packed full of praise, ammunition for Jesus. And along the way, I want you to see that it will answer some of the greatest questions that we have in life. 
The first question that you might have is, what is God like? The Romans and the Greeks had a pantheon of gods, literally gods for any occasion. So the question becomes, what is the real God like? What is he like? Well, if you say Caesar is Lord and you said, what is God like? He'd say, well, fortunately, I'm going to provide you with a visual aid. Um, Here's the coin. You want to know what he is like? His icon, his image is on the coin. If you're going to say Caesar is Lord, there's Caesar. You can see his image there. Even though he's not here himself, I can see his image. Caesar rules here because his image is here. Have a look how this passage helps us to know what is God like. We're in Colossians uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at, at verse 15 here. In verse 15 we read, The Son, this is talking about Jesus, The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. So my first point today is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's like, you you, you can't see God is spirit, it says. So how do I touch and see? How do I know what the God who is really there is like? Well, his son reveals it. But it's really interesting thinking about this idea of uh, image or icon. Remember in the creation account, God says, In the image of God, he made them, male and female, he created them. So in some sense, you and I, human beings, are in the image of God. That's awesome, right? But then I'm not a very good image of God sometimes, as you might ask my wife. Um, If you spend some time in my house, you might not want to worship the God that you see there. Uh, I'm a a marked image of God. Sin stains me. It, it, It messes me up being a good image of God. And what God said was, in fact, while humanity might bear the image of God, you can't make any images of me. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? You can't make any idols. So Hebrew religion, the Jewish religion, has no idols. There's no image of that God. You can't make one. And yet, amazingly, extraordinarily, in this passage, we see something has happened. Come with me to that other reading in Hebrews uh, chapter 1. So maybe keep a hand in. Your Karen Connect card can go in there maybe in, in Colossians. We'll come back to it. Go to page 1204 or 1820 if you're in the... Um, is that right? Is it 1204 for the Hebrews reading? Um, have a look with me. This is the most awesome passage, by the way. I mean, if you want to lift, lift Jesus up, this is another place to go. Have a look with me uh, in verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in his last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son, have a look at verse 3 with me. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus truly makes him known. I can know God's powerful. I can say he's ordered by looking out at creation. But I don't know him in his son unless I meet him in Jesus. And so I'd encourage you, this book that you have here has four biographies of Jesus' life in it. Do you want to know what God's like? When was the last time you spent some time in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, read and meet your God in the Gospel. Yes? Jesus truly makes him known, and therefore to know God, we must know Jesus. 
To know God, we must know Jesus. Point number one, what's God truly like? Look to the Son. Now, I love making Lego, building Lego. I've been doing it since I was tiny. Love it all the time. There's a next question that we find once we say, what is God like? The next thing we say is we say, who made God? Has anyone had this question before? Some of you might have. If you haven't, your kids have asked you this, right? Who made God? Because we have the Lego experience. The Lego experience is, with a bag of Lego, I can make anything I would like to. And I know if I've been to high school, that the world is actually made of tiny Lego bricks, isn't it? Yes, atoms and these sorts of things kind of go together and they make all the other things. So there's nothing that we see that isn't made of other things. So, yes, Luke, you can come up here and take over at this point. Uh, Quarks. Okay, awesome. I just want to say, talk to Luke afterwards and find out more about quarks. Okay, but, but here's the thing. There are tiny building blocks for everything that we look at. All right? Tiny building blocks for everything that we look at. It makes sense that if we talk about God, we ask, who made God? Right? Everything I see is made. Who made God? That's, that's a logical question. And the answer is, you'll be surprised to know, in this passage. This is what I tell kids when they ask me this. I take them to this passage and we read it together. Have a look with me from verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. So what I'm telling you today, what this passage is saying is, no one made God. No one made God. No one made God. In fact, that's what makes him God. Okay, it's, it's, This is the thing. So who made God? Who made God? No one. You go, oh, well, that's not a very satisfactory answer. No, it is a very satisfactory answer. It's the reason he's God and you're not. Everything else is created. He alone is the creator. Are you with me? He's the only unmade thing. And so, therefore, Jesus, the unmade son, rules supreme over everything that exists. The only one who is unmade. There is nothing that could be greater than him because he made all things. Are you with me? So what's the supreme, the greatest, the most extraordinary thing? God in the person of his son, Jesus, making all things. Well, here's another question. What's God like? Who made God? What are we here for? What, well, if there's a God, what, what am I doing? What, what am I here for? This is a beautiful picture of the night sky, and uh, there's a pole around which all the stars will rotate. And this is a long-term exposure of that, and you can see that beautiful outcome. And there's a center to it that everything pivots around. And we're going to see some more revelation of who Jesus is. What am I here for? I'm going to tell you the answer is in this passage. How wonderful. Have a look with me uh, at verse, uh, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things have been created. Watch, look at these two words. Through him and for him. 
Who is Jesus? Jesus is the center of all creation. It's a Jesus-centered universe. All things are for him. Do you see this? They're not random. They don't have an unintended outcome. They're for Jesus. Therefore, we we need to see what Jesus, uh, who Jesus is, and what he intends for us. There's a a beautiful passage in in John chapter 17. It's just one of these little verses that I absolutely love because it sort of explains what the universe is like. In uh, John 17, verse 3, it says this Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you want to know what eternal life is about? It's all about knowing, loving, and relating to Jesus. Knowing, loving, and relating to Jesus. Therefore, no truly satisfying existence can exclude him. Can you enjoy uh, bacon with your breakfast if you don't know Jesus? Yeah? Can you enjoy uh, the new car smell when you open the door on a new car without Jesus? Yep. Can you have a satisfying career without Jesus? Probably. But here's the thing. Maybe your bacon will be burnt. Maybe your car will get a scratch. Maybe you'll be made redundant from your workplace. These things that we want to find satisfaction in are all intangible and passing. There is only one unmoving center to the universe, and it's Jesus. And so if you try and cram meaning into your life that lacks the center, it will always disappoint and always frustrate. Jesus is at the center of all creation. Okay, so I've got a purpose with my life, but tomorrow I I start worrying about what will happen tomorrow. Why shouldn't I worry about the future? And look, I think anxiety is the malady of our day. Isn't it? It's a thing on the rise everywhere. Anxiety. Uncertainty about our future. What will happen next is the thing that keeps us up late at night. It's the early hours. It's the grip on the chest. It's the pit of your stomach. Anxiety. Why shouldn't I worry about the future? I want to tell you the answers in this passage. Have a look with me at verse 17. I've got to go back to it. I'm in John. Uh, In verse 17, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sustainer of all things. In every sense, tomorrow depends on Jesus. Now, this is really hard, right? Because we, we might sing, the sun will come up tomorrow, tomorrow. Why will the sun come up tomorrow? Well, the earth's rotating around the sun, and, you know, as it spins over, the, the, the sun will come up tomorrow because of a fair bit of momentum, a little bit of physics. Yeah? Isn't that, that's kind of how the universe, we think, kind of that works. But I'm telling you that everything is being sustained by the word of Jesus. Everything, all of our tomorrows depend on Jesus. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that one day he will put an end to this creation. The earth and the elements will be destroyed in the fire, it says, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And maybe Luke can tell me some cosmological reason why everything might get a little bit crunchy later on sometime. 
But, but the reality is, what the Bible says is that God will one day withhold the sustaining word from this universe and then speak another creating word to create a new heaven and a new earth. So in a very real sense, this whole universe is sustained, is hanging on the very words of Jesus. Fortunately, Jesus is dependable. You can rely and trust on him. He is dependable and therefore science and progress are possible, right? And we think this is totally normal because I know that there's physics and there's maths and that I can expect things to happen in an ordered way. Why? Because Jesus holds them all in his hands. And if you think that's normal, it's because you're so Christian in your thinking. Because if you go to an Eastern world, they believe in circles. Have you heard of reincarnation before? You come back and do it again. Do you know that they have a historical view of a circle of history? There are phases and cycles of history. Not progress. It's not linear. It's not going in one direction. It's going in circles. The reason that you're so convinced that the world is going in a direction is because God is taking it in a direction. And we work in a world where we assume that that's true. Who is Jesus? Jesus, by his very word, is the sustainer of all things. Who's God? What's our purpose? What about the future? What happens after we die? This is a real question, isn't it? Just don't talk to me about it on Sunday morning. Is that right? What happens after we die? This is a real question for our society. And do you know where the answer is? It's in this passage. Have a look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Have a look in uh, that Hebrews passage that we were, we, were, um, we were reading before, in Hebrews 1, a bit of Bible flipping required. If you're a Bible ninja, come with me. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. See what it says here, sustaining all things by his powerful word. But then see what it says. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. How did Jesus provide purification for sins? Hint, big prop behind me. By dying on the cross is how he provided purification for our sins. What would you do after you've provided purification for sins? If you're crucified on the cross, what would you do? The answer is nothing. You would be dead. Except this says that after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which implies that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Jesus rises as the firstborn over all things. It says here, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Who is Jesus? The one who breaks the power of death. The one who defeats death that you and I might not die anymore. And therefore, those who trust in him will follow in his footsteps. If death is beaten, if the grave can't hold Jesus, then if I'm holding on to Jesus, guess what will happen to me after I die? The door to eternal life is opened. The firstborn from among the dead. Who is Jesus? The firstborn from among the dead. Well, that's awesome. I love hearing about Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Church is such a mess, isn't it? Yes? It's a disaster. I thought this was a good picture of the church being a disaster. 
You know, how do I engage with the church with a broken heart? You know, I've been let down in church. I have all these high hopes and the leaders, there's all this sin, all this scandal around the church. How do I, how do I keep engaging with the church with, with a broken heart? I want to suggest to you the answers in this passage. Come and have a look with me at what it says in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning in the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the head of the church, his body. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, this is really important to know. Am I the head of the church? No, no, I'm, I'm a functional caretaker under my boss, who's Jesus, right? So I'm the under-pastor of the pastor, right? That's my job. Do you know who isn't the head of the church? The Archbishop of Sydney isn't. I'm thankful that you prayed for him, though, Tom. Beautiful, mate. Wonderful, right? The Archbishop of Sydney isn't. The Archbishop of Canterbury isn't the head of our church. Did you know that? The Pope isn't the head of the church. That might be some news to some people as well. The head of the church only is Jesus. How does he relate to the church? Well, it's a soccer club I've kind of adopted. I like them. Get their jersey out once on the weekend. I I like the church. Good on you guys. Keep going. No. He's intimately connected with them. He's intimately connected with them. The church is Jesus' beloved body. What what an amazing thing to say, right? Jesus is the head of the body, his church. What's the connection between Jesus and the church like? I don't know. It depends on your view of necks, I guess, doesn't it? Right? No, intimately connected. He's the head of his body, the church. It has to be beloved. How do I know that the church is beloved by God? Big prop behind me. Because he died for it. Because he died for it, because he died for you and I, that we might be one into this incredible global group of people across denominations, across nations, that you and I are part of an eternal gathering who will spend forever praising the name of Jesus. It's pretty exciting. And so therefore we must patiently love and look for the bride he has redeemed, right? Our churches are always going to be flawed. They're always going to fall short of this holy ideal. And I want you to keep seeing in this church, the church. Are you with me? And every every time we're forced to think that we're really important, we're nothing. We're We're a little outpost of the church, which is glorious and won at great cost by Jesus. Some of us carry around a thing. It's an outmoded thing. It's called a conscience. Have you heard of that? Some of us are weighed down by our sin and our guilt. And you might even think to yourself, I I can't go. I can't even go to church this week. I feel like such a hypocrite. We know what it is to be crushed by the weight of our wrongdoing and our sin. And so the question is can I ever be free from guilt? Can I ever be free? I'm going to tell you the answer is in this passage. Have a look with me from verse 20 of verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making 
peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Once, once we were mortal enemies of God. We were God's mortal enemies. You go, well, that, that, is that just kind of like some cool language, right? What does it mean to be mortal enemies of God? It means that our sin had a punishment. The punishment was death. You and I deserve to die before a holy God. That, that, that's what it means. Do you notice what it said there? Our evil behavior? And you think, oh, I'm not that bad, am I? Yep. That's what God says. We were God's mortal enemies. Through the cross, Jesus reconciles us. See, we deserve to die, but somebody died for you, right? On the cross, Jesus dies for us that we might be restored to right relationship with God because death got paid. It just meant you didn't have to pay it. Therefore, we can stand free and forgiven by faith and full of confidence. You see, have a look at these beautiful words. If, you've got, if it's your own Bible, underline it. Maybe if it's somebody else's Bible. Maybe it's our Bible. Underline it anyway. It'll help people later. But have a look at what it says. I really want you to see what it says here. In verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. Present you. Ready, church? This is who you are. Holy in his sight. Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Do you know what Satan's name means? Accuser. Do you know what he wants to do? He wants to make you feel rubbish before God. You know you did that again? You know that sin that you, do, you did it again. You're worthless. You're a failure. You've just messed that up. God couldn't forgive you this time around, could he? That voice is never from your heavenly father. Never from your heavenly father. He wants to wash you off, present you holy, without blemish and blameless in his sight. We come boldly into God's presence. Why? Because we've never sinned. But because we're washed by the blood of Jesus who has declared us holy in his sight. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Now, what do I think about this passage? I, I think it's extraordinary. I can't believe, before Paul wrote this, do you know no one had ever written this about Jesus? That we're aware of. And God had obviously revealed to Jesus in extraordinary manner how high and mighty and awesome Jesus is. These are ideas to reckon our size under. What do I mean by that? Have a look at these people going for a walk. It's a redwood forest, right? Oh, I like going for a walk through trees. Coming a bit closer, right? They're massive. These are massive ideas. So when we think, you know, you could be tempted to think, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit on the side. But you're here on Sunday morning. You've made a choice to give some of yourself to Jesus, and I want to encourage you to do that more and more. There is an awesome Jesus that we stand before that will require the best of you. The best of you, the very best of you. Who is Jesus? 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the center of creation, the sustainer of all things, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church, his body, the reconciler of all things. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord of all or not at all. And church, you're here because you know Jesus is Lord of all. Because in your hearts you love him. Because in your hearts you treasure him. You're here. You made this decision today because you honor Jesus. He is Lord of all. I found this incredible uh, video uh, this week. And um, it's from a church in China. And this, this video was entitled, How I Approach Police Interrogations. You see, if you say Jesus is Lord, despite the fact in Australia nobody cares other than to say keep it to yourself, in China they see it as a threat to the state. It's a profoundly destabilizing thing to say there's a higher power than the communist government of China. So these people who meet in homes and buildings, they say Jesus is Lord. And it threatens the whole of society there. So what does the government do? The only responsible thing. They detain, interrogate, torture the people who would have a higher claim than the government. So here's this guy, and he stands up and he says, this is how I approach police interrogation. Now, you can watch the video later, but the bit that that caught me out in the the video, it's extraordinary, Uh, this is is Pastor Wang Wang Yi uh, from, I think it's New Rain. Uh, church. He says, don't give yourself too much wiggle room. He says, I I get arrested. And he says, what I do now, he's he's talking to his church in the video. He's up the front of his church, like I'm talking to you. He says, you know what I do? When I'm first arrested, he says, I make the biggest statement of what I believe as clearly as possible as the first thing when I go into the the interrogation. He says, you might wonder why I do that. He says, I need to make sure. He says, I place myself in a spiritually safe position. He said, because if I stay there longer without having declared that I'm a Christian, he said, the threats of of violence and intimidation, he said, could cause my commitment to Jesus to waver. So he says, I say that first up front, and he says, it puts me in a spiritually safe position. He says, it puts me in in a physically dangerous position, but there's nothing left for them to ask or torture out of me. He says, I just will face whatever the consequences are after that. This is him preaching to his church in August last year, 2018. In December last year, he was arrested. He is currently unknown whereabouts in jail in China, along with his wife and his children and 300 other members of his church. We want to honor Jesus as Lord of all. You need to have a Jesus that would capture your heart that would be worthy of not denying that you could say to your family, follow me as I follow Jesus. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of your glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful words. 3,000 years ago, these were written in Hebrew. A thousand years later, a letter in Greek 
tells us that the king to honour and exalt in whom the majesty and glory is, is Jesus. Our series is called Worthy of the Lord, Life Under the Supremacy of Jesus. And we're going to get really practical. But if you don't have Jesus as supreme, the rest of it won't make sense. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, your son Jesus is glorious. He is worthy of the best of us. And Father, where we've messed that up, forgive us. Lift our eyes afresh. Renew our hearts, the hearts that took us here to church this morning. Refresh and energize. Empower us, Father, that we might bring true and worthy honor and glory and praise to you today in this little outcrop of your body that one day we might join in face-to-face fellowship with all those who name you as Lord. Amen.